0: if you're anything like me you ask yourself this question how do the ultra rich protect and grow their wealth without being trapped by banks market volatility government restrictions fees and taxes you know that the wealthy have insider knowledge about where to put their money and how to make it grow for them on autopilot for far too long these secrets have been locked away in private family offices and boardrooms This podcast reveals these secrets and makes wealth creation possible for all of us. My name is Sean Adams. Welcome to Wealth Secrets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wealth Secrets podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sean Adams. Great to have you guys with us. I have an interview today with a gentleman named David Barnett. I've been following David for a long time. He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to small businesses, acquisitions, investing, financing terms, talk about banking. He's just a, a well-rounded entrepreneur that really knows a lot about uh, how to make small businesses more effective, how to manage them, how to sell them, and even how to buy them. So he's been working in this industry, kind of doing consulting and, and buy and sell, investing for more than 20 years. And we have a great conversation today specifically around this concept of investing locally. And I read his book a couple of years ago, and it was very just thought provoking to me. And you know, on this show, we like to reveal alternative investments. And I think that what we cover today is going to really resonate with some of you guys. We talk about how small and mid-sized businesses have concerns when it comes to financing, they have to figure out where and how they're going to maybe bridge themselves between equipment purchases or uh, between payments for customers. And there's all kinds of opportunity that exists where big banks and lending sources are either terrible on in terms or in the the way they structure the financing, or they're just simply not interested and they disqualify so many small businesses. And so In this episode, we really unpack. David explains how it's possible to get involved as a lender, how to create passive income opportunities for small businesses, how to really help solve major problems for them, as well as getting us excellent returns on our investments. We tie in how we can use things like our leveraged wealth accounts to double dip and be able to have our money growing in two places at once. And we really cover how this is going to only get more advantageous from an opportunity standpoint as the world continues to evolve uh, post-COVID as well. So I think there's a lot of good information on this episode. Definitely check out the show notes and check out David's information. He has some great books, a great blog, videos, always sharing good information about um, how to better small businesses and more importantly, just creative ways to think about the investing and finance world. So Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with David Barnett. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. It's great to see you today. Yeah, really excited about this conversation. I've been following your content for a long time. We were talking about before we hit record. I I read your book about a year ago or so and uh, was really fascinated by the concept. It was something very, very new to me. And uh, we're going to dive into some of those intricacies and uh, kind of talk through that. Before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd love to contextualize your backstory a bit. I know you've had an interesting entrepreneurial career and professional career. Walk us through uh, what, what that looked like. Bring us up to speed
1: yeah, sure. So I'm one of those people who's always had an interest in business. Even from childhood, I always had some kind of thing going on to try to make money for myself. And I would always be frustrated when I would be going to a business somewhere and I could quickly figure out that there was a much better way to be serving customers and or they could make more money or, or cut costs or what have you. And so it led me to business school where I thought they were going to teach me how to be a businessman. Turns out, what they actually do there is turn out what I call Fortune 500 bureaucrats. You know, they they train you to be middle manager in some big company, and that's not what I was interested in. I was interested in small business, and then when I got out of out of business school, I went and got a job with the Yellow Pages, which which was really a formative experience for me. We're talking about the 1990s, so back then, if you typed plumber into Google, you'd get a plumber in California. They they hadn't figured out how to localize the results out of Google, and so. If you were a small or medium-sized business in a city anywhere and you were trying to get customers in your town, the Yellow Pages was really important. So for about seven years, I worked doing that and I would visit the owners and managers of small medium-sized businesses, get an idea of what they did and how they made money. And eventually it led me, I mean, I could see what was happening with the internet. I knew the future of Yellow Pages was going to be in question. So I, I decided to leave. I got into a business of my own. I sold that business and then got into financing. And so I started up a commercial debt brokerage where I would help small and medium-sized business owners get into lines of credit, mortgages, equipment leases, things called factoring facilities where you sell accounts receivable, and just helping people get their hands on cash And the bankers actually were good friends of mine because if a business owner went to a regular bank and the banker wasn't able to help them, those guys would refer the clients over to me because they knew I had a larger suite of sort of alternative financing opportunities. And as I started to do these deals, I started to realize just, you know, how they're done, what the paperwork looks like and and how the leasing companies and the banks themselves don't really expose themselves to a lot of risk. They, they do a lot of things to make sure that they don't end up you know, losing in a lot of these different propositions. And I was struck by the idea that this might be something that I could do. I went looking for a book, kind of like the one I ended up writing. Uh, I was never able to really find anything outside of sort of real estate investment, hard money lending type books. The problem with real estate, though, is if you want to start doing loans to people who want to flip houses and stuff, you really need to be probably in the you know six figures of, of wealth liquid that you're willing to put into a single deal. That wasn't my scenario at the time. And I was looking at, you know, what could I do to earn a good rate of return on my money without exposing myself to risk and while being able to afford to diversify myself meaning the sticker price on the deals had to be substantially lower than what people were doing with hard money
0: lending in real estate. Yeah, it's funny hearing your backstory. I'm picking up on, you know, I follow your podcast and read a couple of your publications, your blogs and things. I'm, I'm picking up on the uh, the experience and where that led into some of the insights. You know, you take a lot of questions from your audience and walk them through these very practical situations. And, and that's what I think res- is going to resonate well with our audiences, that you are going to share not just this hypothetical big, mm. you know, seminar, I'm going to sell you on this, that. And the other thing, it's, it's very practical. It's rooted in small business scenarios. And I think, that that practicality is missing from a lot of content. So I applaud your effort there. And, and that's kind of what I want to unpack to start the small business side. I mean, a lot of our, our audience has their own business or is aspiring to do so. Why is the financing bridge lending? Why is that such a challenge for small businesses? Like, let's kind of start, start there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, there's a, there's a lot of unique scenarios when it comes to these small businesses. So first of all, the, the risk profile of small businesses is much different than it is for, you know, the Coca-Colas of the world, for example. A lot of it has to do with the individuals who are participating. So for most small businesses, they are owner-dependent that person is making all the decisions day to day. And if something happened to that person, if they should suddenly pass away, for example, in an accident, it's going to be very difficult for anyone else to be able to step in and take over or keep that business running. Varies greatly depending on the type of business and the size of business, of course. But even with, as you can imagine, a lot of businesses, they they, they don't necessarily have a whole lot of runway. You know, If there's some kind of hiccup, look at all the businesses that you know, have unfortunately ended up closing because of what happened with COVID, there's not a lot of wiggle room. And so even if someone else can step in, if there's some sort of interruption, it can lead to an instability, which could ultimately cause that business to close. And so lenders in this space understand that there's greater risks. And so they go looking for a higher rate of return. The Business owners sometimes try to avoid that by letting personal credit stand in as a proxy for business credit. So I'll see that a lot when I'm looking at the financial statements of a small business. You'll see various credit cards or loans or a home equity line of credit that the for the owner's home where they've taken those personal credit facilities and they've, they've tucked that money into the business because it can be cheaper than accessing what might normally be available to them. But this is what also creates the opportunity, you know. When I was doing my my financing work, I was regularly helping people get equipment leases. And when you, you know, there's a big difference between this what they say the lease rate is and what the actual effective net cost of capital is. Once you take into account the fact that you maybe have to make the first and the last payment in advance, and and you you kind of there's all these little magic numbers that move around. And when you say, what truly did the leasing company put out and what truly does the entrepreneur have to pay back and you work out the numbers and you're all of a sudden it's very easy to get into the high teens as far as the real rate of return that that leasing company is charging that person and so if I want to do one of those deals and get access to that kind of rate of return then you know why wouldn't I want to do that especially if I don't have to invest, a whole lot of money in order to be able to set it up for myself.
0: Yeah, yet another place where the small guys, people that even startups that are scaling that have unbelievable potential sort of get shut out of the mix. So you almost get, um, you know, chopped off at the knees before you can even start because you don't meet a certain box. You know, we talk all the time about mm. the traditional financial plan in the States, at least. A, and it sounds like that was the way it works in Canada as well, where it's, it's all based off the kind of industrial, you know, 100 plus years ago, where you you fit into this specific box, you worked for a company for 40 years, and you were taken care of. And it was just that was the, the progression that everybody went in professionally. And that fell apart, you know, in the 60s, 70s or so, and the pensions went away and all that sort of stuff. Yet the 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 methods, the strategy stay the same. They really haven't changed. These same boxes that everybody has to fit in from a savings perspective, but also from a financing perspective, it's like you've got to check all these boxes or it seems as if you're screwed. Like there, there is not a widely adopted amount of options for the, the average small business owner.
1: Well, you're you're absolutely correct. And you know, when banks are willing to extend credit to a business in a business loan, so now we're not talking about the owner's personal credit in a business loan, it's usually something that has to either be backed by collateral, so inventory, receivables, or equipment, machinery, vehicles, that kind of thing, or the taxpayer has to help. You know, now you have, for example, like small business administration type of loans, where yeah, the bank's making a business loan; it's a real business loan, but the only reason they're making it is because the taxpayer is promised to
0: backstop that loan in case anything goes wrong. Yeah, it's it's so true. And they're not always the greatest in that sense. And you're still part of a large organization that, yeah, doesn't always have your best interest in mind. Okay, so I think that tees up the the meat of this conversation, which you mm. wrote a book called Invest Local. Uh, that was the main reason I wanted to reach out and kind of talk today. And you've got a lot of other uh, superpowers from an entrepreneur standpoint that we could unpack. But I think this is a good one for today. So you mentioned that there's obviously this opportunity, there are small and mid-sized businesses out there that have um, crunches in terms of where they can find financing and how they can move things forward. So let's kind of unpack this opportunity a bit. So let's make it really practical. We have a lot of medical professionals, we have some like construction business owners Mm -hmm. here. So if we took the example of, let's say a, a medical professional opened up a new practice and they need to finance some machinery, they've got student loan debt, they're in the first couple of years of their new practice, practice. And there's an opportunity where they can buy XYZ piece of machinery that's going to help catapult them forward. But in turn, they have net 90 day terms with their insurance providers who pay them. And so there's there's these challenges they have to overcome, uh, where cash flow is necessary for them to kind of move their business forward. So let's kind of talk about where an investor listening to this can say, well, where can I kind of step in and take advantage of that kind of opportunity?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so the very first thing that I want to make absolutely clear is we're not talking about making loans to people with bad credit. We're not talking about uh, exposing ourselves to any degree of risk over and above what you might normally want to expose yourself to. In fact, what I'm talking about is cherry picking opportunities that might end up at a bank anyway. So, you know, given that medical professional, for example, let's say they wanted to buy some kind of diagnostic equipment, an ultrasound machine, or something like that. And you know, where are they going to be able to get the money for that? As you said, they probably have a lot of student debt. They need some kind of financing. If they can pay for that machine over the course of a couple of years, the machine is gonna help them generate the revenue required to make the payments, okay? So there's gonna be a positive ROI for that doctor to finance that ultrasound machine. So then the question is, what is the cost of capital going to be? you know, they're a doctor and doctors earn a lot of money. There's a good reputation in that profession. And so maybe, a, you know, some lender is willing to lend the money at, I don't know, 7 or 8% interest. So, so not an unreasonably high rate of interest. But let me ask your investors a question. If you had the money to, to buy that ultrasound machine and you were to put that money on deposit at the bank, what would the bank give you for your deposit? Like, would they even give you 1%? right so so here's the opportunity is as long as you can get access to deals like that with that with that young doctor for example you could go and make an arrangement where you finance that piece of medical equipment instead of the doctor paying some bank 7 or 8% maybe they pay you 6 and so now you are earning over six times the rate of return that you would if you put the money on deposit at the bank And the the doctor is actually saving money. So they're in a better position. One of the things I I say in my book is that any loan you make should be putting the borrower in a better financial position. Because if you are helping that business owner be more profitable and have greater cash flow, that just enhances your security. The last thing we want to do is ever have to realize the security, go and get that thing that, uh, that we've made a loan on. But Let's say the investor is a doctor. Okay. And so, you're a more established doctor that's got money in the bank, they go and they do this deal for the younger doctor. What happens if that younger doctor were ever to fail? Well, you're a doctor. You collect on that collateral, you end up with that piece of machinery. You then are able to use your connections and networks to find a new home for that piece of gear. And so, I've been doing these deals for a long time, but it's 2021 now. I've been doing these deals for about 13 years. I have yet to repossess a piece of equipment, a piece of collateral. I've yet to do it. But if I did have to do it, all I would do is I would, take, I would get that thing back and I would find someone else that needed to have that piece of equipment. And I'm pretty confident I would be able to, to get it out there and just get the loan performing again, find somebody else who is ready to pick up those payments and then start collecting the monthly check again. So what you
0: said at the very beginning of that comment, you're buying into the right types of deals and by yes. doing that you've done a vetting process where you're investing in some sort of asset even if you took the individual out of the situation the piece of equipment you finance the business the piece of real estate whatever it is has some sort of cash flow or some sort of you know positive return that it, it has in itself this isn't we're not talking about just giving your friend who has an idea you know while he's had a six mm-hmm. pack that night and just investing throwing him some money we're talking about a real business transaction and by that vetting process you know you're investing in the, the concept that that is going to be viable as an investment and that your relationship with that person can help catapult that forward but it's not necessarily the only piece of that puzzle. So yeah. well, well
1: let me let me tell you the story of when this the seed was first planted where i thought hey i could probably pull this off myself. I had arranged it was a small junk removal business that was being sold and there was a used truck with you know a hoist that would let it dump off things at the landfill. And it was a used truck, and and the buyer came to me and said, "Can you help me get financing for this?" And I found a leasing company that was willing to do the deal. Now, a used vehicle is depreciated in value, and the fact that it's a used truck and it's being used every day means it's going to depreciate rather quickly. So the leasing company was able was willing to do the deal, but it was a very short deal, 24 months. The interest rate was quite high, but the payment still made sense for the for the buyer. They were going to be able to make money with this truck. And so this leasing company, which is a multi-billion dollar operation up in Toronto, they sent me by email a power of attorney to act on their behalf, to go down to the local DMV office and change the title of this truck into their name with the buyer's name listed as the operator. Mm -hmm. And I was standing in line at DMV looking at this piece of paper saying, you know, I've just been given authority in a very limited way to act on behalf of this giant financial entity. And it really just comes down to this, is they're going to have their name now on the registration of this vehicle. And now that buyer can't sell the truck. He can't remortgage the truck. He can't put a loan on the truck. Like They are now tied to this truck. If anything happens, They'll probably call me and ask me to go pick up the truck. I don't know. But like I, I could just see how this stuff was, was rather simple. You know, it's just a matter of having the paperwork in order. And then it was literally a couple of weeks later, I had a woman approach me. She had this very small little diner kind of place, and a lot of her business was being done in cash. So she didn't have, you know, proper financial statements. A lot of small business owners are going to relate to this. Where, so she wasn't showing profitability because she was playing games with the tax man, but she needed to replace a piece of kitchen equipment. And, you know, it was only an $1,800 thing, but she didn't want to tie up her cash. And I thought to myself, here's my chance. It's only $1,800. And I went and I looked through the different paperwork that I had handled for other people brokering these deals. And I kind of wrote up my own agreement and using, you know, just paraphrasing and copying language from these other contracts. And I made the agreement and it was a, I think it was a 24 month deal I made with her. And for 24 months she paid me. And I think I charged her like 13.9% on that deal. And so it was a very small deal for a very high rate of return. And, And that's when I started to realize all the potential opportunities of doing this kind of deal and um you know in the book i talk about how you want to take advantage of your knowledge and so so this is the key thing is you you want to be doing these deals in an area where you yourself have some kind of expertise or knowledge so if you're familiar with machine shops or if you're a welder or something then financing welding equipment machine shop equipment is the place where you should be you want to take advantage of what you know and if you don't really know anything, then there's certain categories that it's easy to learn, like vehicles, for example, like uh, you know those service vans that plumbers and carpenters use. It's very easy to get an understanding of, of what's going on with those types of things and to see what the market's like and, and to see how they're bought and sold and what they go
0: for. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And What I like about this and what I've always tried to put forth from a business development or sales perspective or just entrepreneurial spirit is this idea of creativity in your options. Again, people just take things at face value that I was given option A and option B, and it's either the bank or I don't do the deal at all, or I got to go bankrupt. Like they aren't willing to get creative. And several times I'm, I'm going on, will likely be the third property that's come my way from being creative and looking at owner financing. H- taking an opportunity where someone is, is in pain. They don't want this property anymore. They don't want anything to do with it. They've got other things going on. They don't have the wherewithal or the resources to try to fix it. It doesn't, in, you know, fill in the blank with what pain point they're experiencing. But when I could come in and be this sigh of relief, this creativity that they were like, hmm, mm-hmm. I never even thought about that. I thought I either had to foreclose or I had to um, you know, go bankrupt or I was going to sell this at the lowest possible dollar as is condition and realize that there were other options if you could think. Creatively like that, so I love that that knowledge of focusing on what you know, but also thinking outside the box as well. And if you've if you're willing to do that, people will open up to you, especially when their their back is against the wall or there there are parameters and restrictions in place. I'm, I'm sure you've seen that time and time again.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's interesting because the this book Invest Local was written for people. My idea was I was writing to an audience of people who. Uh, we're looking for alternative and different ways to make investments with their money. Um, I hear from readers all the time. They send me emails. About a third of the people who reach out to me are not investors at all. They're small business owners. And they're trying to figure out how to get their hands on capital. And they bought the book so that they can then go and make some kind of uh, logical presentation to someone they know who has money to try and achieve some something in their business, some kind of growth, expansion, updating equipment, or
0: something like that. What a great byproduct of putting that idea out there, even though you're focusing on the you know kind of investor side. That's that's really cool to hear. I could definitely see that being the case. I actually the, one of the first businesses I started was a, was a contracting firm, and honestly, that's how I got started. at The beginning was presenting someone that I had a relationship with. They understood the space, they saw the potential, and it made a ton of sense. They got their money back. I was able to jumpstart things. It's it's a it's a win-win there. You know, one of the the notes that I wanted to underscore here, you mentioned in the the vetting process, obviously wherever possible, like Warren Buffett says, you know, you invest in things that you know, right? So obviously, things like technology, he understands that there's a huge market for, but he doesn't understand it. Therefore, he doesn't invest in it. It's just not for him. He's not saying it's a bad deal. So wherever possible, investing in things that you understand markets, networks, whatever it might be that that you if you're a medical professional can can help out people in that space. So apart from that, talk me through the the vetting process. You have great business acumen. You've been in this space for a long time. We find a lot of people that are in the technician trap, like they talk about in the e-myth. They're excellent surgeons. They're excellent contractors or whatever it might be, but they've never been taught the business side of how to analyze a deal, what to look for, cash flow. It's very overwhelming to think about. So any pointers there when someone's vetting a deal, even if they have remote understanding of the space where they can kind of Think clearly about what makes a good deal.
1: Yeah, sure. So, so the the very first thing that I always say to people when you're going to do your very first deal um, is to find out what the limit is on small claims in your jurisdiction. Yeah. So here's the thing: is the first deal you do, if something goes wrong, you want to be able to sue someone for fifty bucks or whatever the fee is down at the courthouse, right? So that's the very first thing. Mm-hmm. Once you've done a couple and you kind of get your training wheels off, and you know. The the second thing is that you have to consider where the deal comes from. So, you want to be connected in some way through a direct social network with the person who you're doing the deal with. So, what that usually means is friends of friends. And, you know, why? Well, you know, if somebody's going to get into trouble financially in their business, it's a lot easier to default on Citibank's loan than it is to default on your buddy's friend that helped you out, yeah. right? <laughs> there's there's a lot more moral suasion you know, involved in being connected in some way with the person that's doing the deal with you. And so the, the second thing is that one of the reasons, some of the deals I do, guys can go to the bank. I've got people doing deals with me that are paying me a higher rate of interest than the bank. So why are they doing that? A couple of reasons. Number one, I don't report to credit bureaus. So As small business owners grow and they do more and more stuff, a lot of suppliers are hitting their credit report. A lot of their banks' credit cards are hitting their credit report, report. And so it can make sense sometimes to be doing some of these deals where you're not being affected on your credit report. And number two, I ask for a different kind of guarantee from the borrowers. So instead of asking someone to personally guarantee the full amount of the loan, which is what all the banks are asking them to do. Mm -hmm. I ask for a personal guarantee that they're going to deliver the collateral to me in the event of default. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a scenario where somebody doesn't have to be embarrassed and want to run and hide if things don't work out for them. I don't, I want communication. I want someone to be open with me, to talk with me if there ever is a problem I've never had to foreclose on any deals. I have had people call me up and explain they have a cash flow problem. And I've said, well, how about this? Let's do interest-only payments for three months and free up a little bit of your cash. I end up earning more money. The note just gets longer and it can help them through a tight spot. But if they're going to fail, I don't want them to skip town or run away or try to sell everything just to avoid their obligations. I want them to know that if they Pack up that equipment and deliver it to my house, that they're they're done. Right. It, much in the same way the pawnbroker, you know, he accepts uh, something of value. And if you never come back to pay the pawn loan, he just keeps the thing. It's no harm, no foul. That's the kind of situation I want to create where I don't have to go running after people if things go wrong. So, so what have we got there? I've got start off small. You want to be socially connected so that there's some sort of social repercussion for, for going bad on the deal. Third is you want to know something about the equipment that you're getting involved with. So you want to be able to be familiar enough to know that it really is worth what people are saying it's worth, et cetera. And, and the last one is, is you want to know that doing this deal is going to help that small business be in a better position. So I'll give you an example. One of the deals I did a couple of years ago, I helped out some fellows who were doing epoxy garage floors. And so they were renting from a tool shop, one of these grinders to smooth out concrete floors. And so every month they were spending hundreds of dollars in rental fees on this grinding machine. And sometimes other contractors would have it booked and they'd have delays in their jobs. So they wanted their own. They were starting off and it was a few thousand dollars of investment. And my payment every month that they were going to give to me was about half of what they were paying the tool shop. So so right there, me making that loan to them for that equipment was going to free up several hundred dollars a month in their cash flow. It actually made their business stronger. And ultimately, that's the best way to protect your customer's ability to pay you is to make sure they're making money.
0: Yeah. I remember what struck me in reading the book was you weaving in this human element to mm-hmm financing, which is a very rigid, stiff, uncomfortable, typically boring conversation for most people. But you brought it in as if, like you said, friends of friends, or if I was sitting down at somebody at a local establishment and just kind of talking about what's going on, you know, it's much easier to disclose what problems I'm having. And again, get creative with solutions, interest only payments, give you a break here. And it's not about you know, being too lenient, but actually understanding that I, I will still be in the exact same position. And the fact that you shifted the focus, and this is like customer service one on one, right? You're thinking about the being empathetic to their situation, if shit hits the fan, and it's going to be ugly. I want that person one, I want my best interest to be covered. But I want them to feel like, you know, th- this mm-hmm. business world is very risky. It's, it's challenging, it's overwhelming. I want them to feel like if they had kind of an easy way to mitigate their downside and walk away without that, ego, the emotional component, like that's so, so powerful to to be able to kind of take that out of the equation. I, I think that's, yeah, that's huge.
1: Well, you know, ultimately, Sean, business is done between people, right? And and what I've learned over the years is that a lot of the times I'll do these deals and then people just keep coming back, right? E- yeah. Even though they're bankable, even though they can go and borrow money at the bank, they, they come back and they want to do more deals with me. And, and that serves my end, which is to, you know, develop these assets that are a higher rate of return. Personally, for me, the benefit to me is that by having these higher yielding investments, I can have a small amount of my overall portfolio earning a high rate of return. And it means that I can be fully happy having the bulk of my wealth and savings in like very secure investments, earning a very low rate of return. Mm. And I still overall get an average rate of return on my overall portfolio that's going to help me achieve my objectives. So that's that's kind of where 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 I approach it. And you know, these deals the last thing you do is put an ad on Craigslist saying I have money to finance small businesses. What what you do is you just start talking to your friends. So when I started to do these things, I, I was a member of the Kiwanis Club here. And so I just started, you know, Kiwanis Clubs full of professionals and business owners and those types of people, accountants and lawyers. And I just started mentioning to people that I had done some of these deals. And then all of a sudden, you know, people run across people that are looking for some kind of way to get something done. And, and your phone's ringing and it's,
0: you know, you found out Joe passed your name to some guy. And that's that's how you do this. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It was going to be one of my questions about the, the lead flow, because I'm sure people are thinking about that. Um, but just like anything else, you know, trying to leverage your existing network and who you already know, and maybe think a little more critically about where those opportunities could be with the up and coming or someone who would be less of a, you know, a person that would be easy for a bank to lend to, you know, start start there. That makes a lot of sense. The one last piece I wanted to touch on on the kind of risk profile, just playing devil's advocate. Obviously, there's the you've built in or baked in this level of protection with making them personally guarantee the collateral. Talk about the other risks to this sort of thing. So I'm sure people are thinking about putting their hard earned money with somebody else. And that's kind of overwhelming. So other risks, other um, creative ways people are thinking about that side.
1: Yeah. So there's actually a whole section in the book on risks. I, I forget how many different forms of risk I identify. I think there's like nine or something like that. But the for every type of risk that I outline in the book, I also give the mitigating sort of move in how you set up the deal. So whichever one you're the most concerned about. So for example, if it's, if you're new at this, and you're not really sure that you want to risk all your money, uh, there's a whole bunch of different leveraging techniques that I demonstrate in the book. One of them is to split the note with another person. So let's say you have some money and you want to do this and you're not sure you want to manage the deal flow. You find someone else that wants to do this with you, and then you go in together on certain of these deals. So the the floor grinder example that I gave you, I didn't I'd never done business with those guys before. I wasn't really certain about them. Everything I found out about them or Was able to uncover about them seemed good. Um, I've got a buddy who owns a bunch of restaurants and um, he's always saying to me, if you ever have a good investment opportunity, let me in. So once I did the deal with those guys, I called him up and I sold him half the note. So I got half my money back the day after I did the deal. And then because I sold an interest in the cash flow, what that meant is if there ever was an interruption in payments, then he would only be getting half of whatever I got. And if that was zero, he'd get zero. Mm-hmm. So I was sharing the risk with that other guy. And I and I show in the book, all the different things you can do. So if you want to increase risk, for example, this is an example of one of the deals I did. I made someone a $10,000 loan uh, secured with a trailer home. And then I turned around and I used my note as collateral to borrow $9,000 from another guy I know at a lower interest rate. And so this is what banks do when they give you one percent on your deposits, and then they go and lend, you know, on a car loan at nine percent. They make the spread, and that's what I was doing. So by the time I had lent out ten thousand, then borrowed nine at a lower interest rate, I only had a thousand dollars of my own money tied up. But I think my share of the cash flow was about one hundred and thirty bucks a month, and so it was like hundred and fifty percent rate of return. I detail it in the book, but it was because I leveraged. You know, the asset I had created, the note against the trailer home, and I used that to borrow money at a lower rate. Now, what would happen if that lady had not paid me? Well, you know, the same thing that happens if you don't pay the bank. I would have foreclosed on that home and then I would have probably sold the home and I certainly would have been able to get enough money to pay off my investor. But in the period of time when I was managing all of that foreclosure hassle, I'd be in my own pocket paying him. And so I was willing to live with that because I knew that at the end, it would be able to sort itself out. And I was happy with that level of risk. But that's the kind of stuff that I go through in the book, as I talk about all of these different techniques where, you know, yeah, you can find someone who's willing to borrow from you for 12.9 or 15% interest or something like that. But then using a leverage strategy, you can still end up making yourself over 100% rate of return just by learning how to access other people's money. And, you know, you mentioned you know, people in your audience, maybe who have money, who've never done a deal. To begin with, finding someone to do them with can certainly create opportunities for you. And if you really don't want to have risk, then you could be the guy like my, my buddy was, the investor. And so not only did he have security in that he had a, a security interest in the note I had created, he knew ultimately his loan was to me. And so he knew that I was good for the payment, which was
0: a couple hundred dollars a month. Yeah, I love that. I'm smiling because you used our our secret magic word, leverage, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> my my company's leverage life management, and that's for a reason, right? We talk about the leverage wealth accounts and, and that side of things. So I think that's a great place to transition. And you know, most people are going to recognize kind of wh- why we're bringing up this sort of thing. You know, obviously we help people get the safety and the guarantees, and uh, we call it building the warehouse of wealth. Where is your cash actually sitting? Okay, so we get that portion accomplished. Most of our audience is moving that direction or realizing they need to have that safety net, that that place to lock away their cash and get a guarantee, even if it is a lower rate, something four to 6%. But now it's like, okay, well, what's next? And I, this is why this show, this was the catalyst for creating this show. Okay, Sean, I followed the plan. I got things in this account now what? Now I want to I want to use this money. This, this money needs a job. It has a job now gaining guaranteed interest, but it can work harder somewhere else. It can be mm. moved elsewhere. It can be leveraged out. So I'm sure you guys can start to connect the dots here. And this is the, the, the power that I'm, I'm going to be implementing here shortly is to be able to leverage that account out and go invest in a small business, go help them with some sort of loan structure. And now it's like, I'm getting 8% over here. I'm getting 6% guaranteed. There's fees and, and interest you're paying, but still, You're way above board with each of the investments. And I love your strategy because everything you do, you have a baked in mitigation strategy, which I think is is just so, so powerful to be able to do. So have you seen, I know you're involved with your own kind of version of a life insurance policy and be able to do that as an asset. Have you seen some people get creative with that side being able to leverage a, a safe asset?
1: Well, uh, I think people refer to it as a barbell strategy, right? Where you have some money earning a really low rate of return and other money earning a really high rate of return. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of deals that I do play well into that sort of overall strategy. As you grow your portfolio of these small, little small business notes, certainly you could take advantage of things like policy loans to help finance some of those deals um, if the opportunities came along. At the end of the day, you know, it's not that I'm trying to build a bank for myself. I'm not, I'm not trying to have like a 100 of these deals on the go. It's just taking advantage of these sort of low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, like I said, half the deals I do, people would qualify for bank loans anyway. And I'm able to get the deal for myself because I'm offering them a better deal. But it's giving me so much more than I would ever be able to get, you know, if I was just leaving that, those funds on deposit. It's just something else to have in your tool belt as far as, you know, managing your finances and, and growing your wealth. But, yeah. but let me, let me, let me, let me, give you this other example too. I had a very interesting conversation with a guy, uh, he was in Pennsylvania and he had read the book a few years ago and he was a pizzeria owner and his business had been very successful. He had paid down his debts and he was operating very well, but he really knew that in order for his business to fire on all cylinders, he had to be there, you know, Friday and Saturday night, like he needed to be in the mix. But he wanted to grow. And usually when pizzeria owners get to that point, the, the, the thing that's often presented to them as the next logical move is to open another location, which obviously entails all of the risks of opening up a second location and a new business. And of course, you can't be guaranteed. Well, you can't be in two places at once. So, So what's going to happen? Which one's going to suffer from you not being able to be there? What this guy did is he decided instead of opening a second location, he started to take some of the profits from his business. He started to finance equipment in the pizza business. And so he basically drew a circle on the map about an hour and a half drive from where he was located. And he said, I will look at deals in this area. He knew the pizza business. He could go in and he could talk to someone He could understand from their volume what their numbers should look like, if they should be making money or not, and if it made sense for him to make an investment in their restaurant. And that's the way he decided to grow beyond having just one location. So operationally, he remained focused on the one business he knew he could manage and control himself. And then he grew his wealth by getting involved, again, in a business he understood. But these other businesses had dedicated operators who were going to be there Friday and Saturday night making sure they were doing what they had to do to be able to make the payment to him.
0: What a great creative way to come up with a solution there. Diversifying and also, you know, in the investing world, it's always talked about competition. They usually put into the the frame of reference for real estate. There's no good deals out there. The interest rates are too low. Uh, Investors are willing to pay too much. I can't make the spread that I want to, right? And so the reason we bring on guests like David are to talk through opportunities out there that you never thought about, because how easily could he have gotten, as you said, in your example, just bogged down and kind of ruined two enterprises by making the wrong move instead of saying, Mm -hmm. what's the, what elements do I want to cherry pick out of what's good here? And what can I leverage personally in my, my realm of expertise uh, to move forward into something else, get a rate of return. And now he's actually bringing on passive income for that, right? So it's that idea of leveraging your know-how and also bringing it back with some passive friends along the way, which is really, really powerful.
1: Well, and, and what that gentleman's doing in his example is at some point in the future, if he wants to retire from the day-to-day operations, he's building this portfolio of, of passive notes. He can then sell his pizzeria one day, but then carry on with the financing activity he's still going to be an industry expert he's still going to know everything that you need to know about running these businesses and he'll be able to make you know wiser choices about where he invests and maybe he'll start to diversify you know into some uh, florida pizza businesses that need some money
0: right <laughs> absolutely yeah and that's what i really like is is being able to package this it could be its own enterprise just focused on the lending side. But like you said, you don't have to go and have a thousand of these loans out, right? You you wanna pick the ones that make the most sense. And if it is a passive investment, you get to run it through the ringer to make sure it's a really good opportunity. I love that. So the, the last piece I wanted to touch on is, is really, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of, of 2021. The world is in a very strange place. Interest rates are very low. The real estate market in the United States is all over the place. Homeowners are purchasing properties with, you know, 30, 40% over asking prices, all kinds of weird, crazy things happening, right? That's clearly not sustainable. So first part of the question is what unique opportunities do you see coming down the line in terms of invest local as things start to kind of correct?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. You talk about interest rates being very low. And and again, what you're talking about are the rates that You know the the central bank and the big banks are talking about. If you go and you read the small business press, the articles that are talking about what we're talking about, what you'll find is that small business people more and more are turning to options like merchant cash advance, which is basically an advance against your credit card terminal. Um, I've got a video on my YouTube channel that talks about the true effective cost of those types of advances. It's horrendous. It's in the hundreds of percent for some people. Um, They're turning to these modern fintech lenders who will advance cash rather quickly, but then they want to debit your bank account every day in some instances. And the interest rates and the costs that these small business owners are paying for this kind of lending is horrendous. It's very expensive. And so why is it that people are actually using these kinds of alternatives? It's because they don't have a choice and, and they don't feel like there's an alternative. And so People often find it surprising when I'll say to someone, you know, oh, you know, soft serve ice cream machine, you could you can finance that to someone at uh, 23.9% interest and they'll be happy to pay that. People go, that's crazy. I'm like, no, no, because the the restaurants, the restaurant equipment leasing companies out there are going to charge that much or more for for that piece of equipment. And if you know that industry at all or if you happen to own a property on the side of the highway, if you ever had to repossess that thing you could either get your your teenage you know daughter to get out there and make some ice cream cones or or you could get it into another restaurant and get someone paying the note again so and a lot of people don't understand these really high rates that these small business owners have to pay and i don't see it changing. I I actually have seen in the last few years getting worse because what's happening is that a lot of the small community banks, community lenders that people could lean on before where those personal relationships existed in the formal banking system, a lot of that is starting to go away. And people more and more have to deal with these institutions online or through a call center, through an application on a website and you know people are are losing the ability to really go and and know their banker and have that banker who has authority to make a loan say you know what we should do this for this guy because i know what they do in the community and i know people support him and i think it'll be a good loan we're moving away from that which is just creating an opportunity for people that want to take advantage of it
0: yeah i mean that's it speaks to the convenience side of things for, for starters. I mean, there's so many things that I do in my life that I pay way more than I could get elsewhere mm-hmm. for the convenience. And also that human connection that we've touched on a couple of times. But, but you're absolutely right. Not being able to, you know, banks, they follow a very strict format. They're very rigid in that. And small business owners do not fit conveniently in the boxes that they're supposed to check on the forms. And so your banker is not going to, you know, proactively tease out this information from you. So what, what I'm hearing you say is even though interest rates traditionally for the nine to five or for the average person are very favorable currently, small business owners are still struggling because the parameters in which financing is viewed from a, a traditional standpoint are still very challenging even though in you know regular Americans are able to get that regular people are able to, to be offered those things.
1: yeah and it, like these fintech things I mean the reason why these companies are such stock market darlings is because they've figured out how to present things in a certain way to make it look cheaper than it really is. and you know we've seen this in the payday loan industry, right? where where people who are in a desperate spot and need to get their hands on a few hundred bucks they'll pay you know they, they think they're paying 15 bucks for every 100 in their mind they think they're paying 15% but of course they're paying 15% on 14 days which is like 390%, right? And and the same thing is going to shake out in the world of small business fintech lending. I think it'll be, have to become more transparent at some point. There'll be different lobby groups that will be, you know, fighting for these kinds of changes and and business owners will wise up. But, you know, like I said, this creates an opportunity for people with cash who are open to doing something a little bit different. And, you know, when, when I was doing this, I built this whole idea around what the banks do anyway. And they are some of the biggest, most profitable businesses out there. And they don't expose themselves to risk.
0: Yeah. As many problems and issues that I have with how banks are structured, they do it right in a lot of ways, right? They're very good at making money and mitigating that downside. We talk about that in our publications all the time about how it's the craziest business model that was ever created. Their raw materials come to them for free. They get to make money on them for next to nothing. And what they're obligated to pay back to their customers in terms of service is, I mean, it's you know negligible to say the least. So it is crazy, but it's a good frame of reference to start thinking of when you talk about terms like self-banking, privatized banking, what ultra wealthy people do, what big corporations do, the way that they diversify, they need that safety net so that they can make calculated risks elsewhere, knowing that they've got the stability Mm -hmm. at their home base in their warehouse.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay, so yeah, what I'm hearing is this opportunity is only going to get more and more prominent as things, unemployment may continue to rise. Hopefully COVID goes away quickly and this is going to be something that there is some bounce back from, but there's going to be a lot of long-term tailwinds that we're going to be dealing with in the economy because of this. And so small businesses are only going to be more and more crunched. They're always the ones that get the brunt of this sort of thing.
1: Well, you know, let's, let's, think, let's talk about COVID here because uh, it presents an interesting opportunity. So the types of businesses that have been, that really have taken it on the chin have been your hospitality, live entertainment type businesses. And when things go back to normal, and I don't know when exactly that will be, but at some point in the future, we will be, you know, hugging strangers, I'm sure, right? And so there will need to be all the you know number of restaurants that there used to be in a big city, they're, they're, we're gonna need them again. Even though these businesses have closed, they're gonna come back someday. So one of the opportunities I detail in the book is if you bought an asset of some kind, a piece of equipment, You know, think about any kind of piece of restaurant equipment you might think of, a pizza oven, for example. If you were to buy one at a really great price, let's say at some kind of auction or liquidation event, you could then turn around and sell it at a much higher price, sort of a fair market value price with the financing. And so what you end up doing is you end up making a profit on the trade of buying low and selling high. And then you are able to find more potential buyers because you're taking away the buyer's biggest problem, which is coming up with the money. So then you deliver the goods and now you've got a performing note. So on top of your trading profit you then also earn whatever interest rate you're earning on the note and so you know th- there could be a lot of opportunities again especially if you're knowledgeable about a certain category of equipment if businesses in your space are closing then i mean it,
0: there could be all kinds of opportunity around you oh man you're getting my you're getting my juices flowing here i'm starting to think of those <laughs> those opportunities yeah, that, that reminds me almost of like land, raw land investing, you know, being able to buy something for pennies on the dollar relative to the acreage. And then the neighbor next door, the builder, whoever wants to purchase it, you then really are, are in the note business. You're, you're then financing it back to that person. So you've bought something with cash, but then created a passive income stream. That's That's really powerful. I really like that idea. I'm sure that's universally a- applicable in a lot of different industries. So really powerful stuff. Love it. All right, David. Well, I mean, you shared a wealth of knowledge here just on this topic. I really appreciate all that information and, and you kind of uh, showing behind the curtain a bit. Obviously, we talked about your book a bit. And that's a great resource. I highly, highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. I think it was put together well. I read it in like a day. It's not overwhelming. It's very thought provoking without being super dry. And I think you did a good job. Um, with that side. But I know you have a lot of other things going on. So let's take a couple of minutes and for people that want to learn more about you, follow your journey and and see that, where can they find out more about you?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, Invest Local is available on Amazon. It's Audible, Kindle, Paperback as well. The majority of my business is actually helping people buy and sell privately owned businesses. And so I've got a YouTube channel all about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. And you can find me on YouTube at David Barnett. Just take a look, you'll find me, there's hundreds of videos. But uh, my blog site is davidcbarnett.com. And all the stuff that I've done over the course of time is all there. I've got some online courses as well about buying and selling businesses and one that kind of takes the next step beyond Invest Local, where I take people through and actually show them how the deals are done and how I underwrite deals and how I uh, keep track of the deals and all that kind of stuff. And um, if you ever want to reach out and talk with me, just head to davidcbarnett.com. My contact information is pretty easy to find.
0: Good stuff. We'll link to all that in the show notes. He also has a podcast that's really, um, I I get a lot of value out of that too. He shares uh, Q&As with customers and and clients who have just specific things from the audience, scenario-based questions that you go into depth with, which I think is really useful. And uh, you teed up a piece there that I think we're going to have to set up a part two on, which is the, the buying and selling side. That does come up. We do have some people that reach out about opportunities, uh, not just on the, the small finance side, but hey, I have an opportunity to buy out someone that's going to retire or COVID has uh, brought up these businesses that need to, to, to be liquidated or they, they're in a crunch and they need to move on or be swallowed up or whatever that might be. So that's a whole nother uh, episode with some content I think we need to unpack for people. So I uh, look forward to that one coming up here soon. We'll have, to, we'll have to book a part two. That'd be awesome. I'd love to come back, Sean, anytime. Awesome. David, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. All right. Have a good one. You too. Hey guys, it's Sean again. Just one last thing before you take off. If you got any value out of this episode at all, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing a quick review about what you got out of the episode here on Apple Podcast. It would mean the world to us. It helps us rank higher in the search engines and spread our message of wealth creation out there to the masses. Thanks so much.